Hello and welcome everyone to the Almost Awesome Podcast, the only podcast that goes great with a glass of cheap wine and expensive Twinkies. Today I'm doing things a little bit differently and I will be talking about a few things that have come out in the last couple weeks. I had to take some time off because I had a leak in my house and then I got sick with a bunch of different things so it took me out of commission. But in that time I saw a whole bunch of stuff that I still want to talk about and I really only like to talk about the most interesting stuff. So in this format of the podcast, I'm going to be talking about a video game, a movie, and a TV show, all in one podcast. So today's topics are Mortal Kombat 11, Dragon Ball Super Broly, and Star Trek Discovery Season 2. So recently, the reveal trailer for Mortal Kombat 11 hit, and NetherRealm Studios had a big launch party for all their fans to salivate over all the new gory action that will fill YouTube with compilation videos with fatalities and funny intros. We got a few characters that we know will be in the game, old favorites like Sub-Zero and Scorpion, some returning characters like Baraka and Scarlet? Y'all remember her, right? Yeah, I didn't either. And a couple of new characters like Gears, or Gears, if you're like me and only read the name, and a new villain called Kronika, and an old villain like Dark Raiden. I mean, honestly, this story just seems like a rehash of the reboot that was Mortal Kombat 9. For those of you who don't know or don't care to remember, let me remind you. During Mortal Kombat Armageddon, everyone said fuck the plot and character development. And just said, all the bad guys are fighting the good guys, and it's every single character ever, and it's basically the nine-year-old equivalent of just banging action figures together. And you don't really bother coming up with a reason why they're fighting. In 9, they established that basically everyone killed each other, which made everything meaningless, and Shao Kahn was the one with the power of a fire god or something despite the fact that he died so many other times and keep being brought back lazily, so at this point, you're just like, sure. Then Evil Raiden sends visions into the future to his past good self, but you're like, wait, isn't he evil, so we can't really trust him, but we know that as an audience, but the characters don't know that, but nope, that doesn't get brought up again, so it's just, uh, it's just really confusing. <laughs> This makes the reboot of Nine an attempt by Raidens to try and fix the mistakes of the past, and essentially all the mistakes that were made in the Mortal Kombat canon prior. But the most of the good guys end up dying at the end of the game, except for Sonya and Johnny Cage, like really all of a sudden and unceremoniously killed off. Then they become undead slaves to Quan Chi, and Raiden is seen as a failure in Liu Kang, arguably the main character, in his eyes, which was the only really interesting part because it added depth to Raiden's character. Then cut to Mortal Kombat X, which had a pretty decent storytelling with consequences of what happened in the last game, and actually bringing in a new generation of fighters and characters with actual depth more than the one-dimensional traits that make us select them for a fight, which was the territory for the developers, so... Good to see them finally trying something new after 10 games and not counting terrible spin-offs. Story. By the end of the game, Raiden develops 
an evil persona again, so it felt like we had just come full circle. And we did. Because this new villain, Kronika, who was the first female boss of the series, and Netherrealm seems a little too proud of that fact, considering that they could have done that at any time in the 40 games in the series. And not just making it Shao Kahn again, but whatever. It's a step in the right direction. But it looks like that she is the keeper of time and is going to be bringing back time travel, so it looks like we're rebooting again. So it looks like we've learned nothing from the chances we took in the last game. Now, of course, when we're talking about Mortal Kombat, the main attraction is the fighting. It seems very brutal and fun and room to for people to really build devastating combos and can get more technical with the fighting if they really want to. One interesting aspect that I wish that they would expand on is this fatal blow system, where after your health bar, sorry, health bar drops to a certain point, it will start decreasing if you're dying or losing blood. This is a nice feature to the game that adds a little sense to the fighting, which can really take a toll on a character, at least in real life, which is kind of weird considering that most of the moves in recent games, like these x-ray moves, should be considered fatalities because they break bones and stab places in people that would normally kill most people. But these attacks you can do in the middle of a fight, so it makes you wonder, how is this guy still standing after he got both eyes stabbed out and shot multiple times? I think they should go a step further in this direction and have the fights wear down your character. Like their blocks aren't as effective after their health bar gets to a certain low. Or if a limb or something gets hit too many times, it gets broken. And then their attacks with that arm or that move isn't as effective. Maybe the characters slow down after a period. Their stamina runs low. I mean, these fights are so brutal. Why not show us the effects of those fights? Mortal Kombat has been about beating your opponent so hard that there would literally be nothing left of them. Especially if they're cheap and keep using the same annoying moves to overpower you. Like Shao Kahn. But overall, it looks like this game is going in the right direction. And part of the appeal of Mortal Kombat, at least for fighting game fans, is that they can control how they fight. They can map out their moves and they can get really technical with it. And that's why there's so many competitions about it. So... It seems like this is going to be further in the direction. There's going to be ways that you can customize your characters to really make them look like anything, which is kind of a carryover from the Injustice series, which Netherrealm also produces. And an interesting side note is it's really interesting to see the kind of relationship between DC and Netherrealm Studios ever since DC Universe versus Mortal Kombat, which was this weird kind of Marvel versus Capcom ripoff. Um, and it was really cheesy, and it, it was just bringing all these characters together in the laziest way possible. But the format of that game kind of revamped the Mortal Kombat series. That's when Mortal Kombat 9 came out, and then after that, that's when Injustice came out. And then Mortal Kombat X came out, and 
and then Injustice 2 came out. Each one kind of building on what works for both games. And it's this weird symbiotic relationship between these two IPs. And it seems to be working out for NetherRealm. The customizations are definitely a thing brought in from Injustice. Where you can earn enough points to get a certain equipment or skills. Or something like that where you can use to upgrade your character. Normally, I don't like having to level grind just to get particular pieces of clothing to make my character look like something. This is a personal gripe, but I really wish that games would just more allow you to make your character look the way you want it without having to level up anything. And the leveling up just comes like you can upgrade different gear with different stones or something like that. But it has no effect on your appearance. You can make them look however you want. The only gripe I have with that is that you can unlock costumes and things like that. That's fine. But when you only unlock certain pieces of equipment and you only keep stuff around because it's, like, high in quality or something, can make your character look stupid. And if you've ever played The Witcher or almost any RPG where your different pieces of your clothing are optional, it can add some pretty hilarious effects, but I would like to control that. Also, this seems to be trudging on loot box territory, which I know a lot of video game fans don't like that. So, I'm hoping they don't bank too hard on that, because Mortal Kombat's more of a comp has a lot of competition to it. And that would be seen as unfair if people could get loot boxes and pay for higher level equipment without having to level grind. And I would appreciate, like, being able to get higher equipment if I didn't have to spend so long trying to obtain it. But I'm not a multiplayer person, so I would never use that against someone else who is level grinding. But anyway, let's move on. Now let's talk about Dragon Ball Super Broly. This is a movie that came out a couple weeks ago, and it's been very impressive because it's been a box office success. It had a full theatrical run. I think it's still in theaters after almost three weeks, uh, which is almost unheard of for Dragon Ball movies. The, and it was an interesting movie because before I saw it, the first thing that was interesting was that this movie was the first Dragon Ball movie to be canon. Unlike every other movie, which just made no sense where the timeline was. Even Battle of Gods and Resurrection F, which revitalized the series, are technically canon, but only because they were later adapted and expanded on in Dragon Ball Super. Serving as a sequel to the TV series, Dragon Ball Super Broly also brings in longtime fan favorite from the movies, Paragus. No, wait, uh, that's the legendary Super Saiyan Broly. What? Who writes this shit? Super Saiyan Broly. Into the mainstream Dragon Ball canon. One odd thing about this movie is that literally half the movie is focused on plot and the second half is all fighting. The movie spends a long time setting up Broly and his father Paragus' origins. 
showing his father being betrayed by King Vachita, a guy who is so uncreative in the series, in a series full of uncreative names, names his planet and his son after him. Instead of a dumb origin story that we got in Broly's first movie where Goku cried as a baby and that made him hate Goku somehow as an adult, Broly is portrayed as having a strong power that the King Daddy gets jealous that he might be stronger than his son and has the baby exiled to a inhabitable planet. Like most Saiyan babies that are sent off to planets in order to conquer them, but he sends them to an uninhabitable planet in hopes that he will just die. So, it's kind of a step up from the whole child murder stuff from the original movie. Broly is portrayed as uncontrollable and animalistic at times, but is controlled by his father, who wants to use him as a weapon for revenge against Vegeta. But this actually makes Broly a little bit more sympathetic by making him very reserved and doesn't really think for himself, only being used by his father. I actually found a lot of similarities between him and Goku. Both were raised in the wilderness, cut off from civilization, and have a part of them that they can't control. At least for when we first meet Goku. The first half also retcons a little bit Goku and Vegeta's escape from their planet being destroyed. They bring Goku's dad, Bardock, back in and also introduce uh, us to his mother, who was introduced somewhere else in the canon, but I'm not really sure. But here, Bardock is a lot more caring for his son, while also neglecting his other son. And kind of forgets he has another one, and goes full on Jor-El and launches his newborn son into space because he's afraid that Frieza is destroying the planet and wanting him to grow up in a much more caring planet, away from all the same heritage that would probably get him killed. Again, forgetting that he already has a son that's an evil monster, so that's kind of being a shitty parent, but hey, Goku must get it from him. The fighting in this movie is non-stop when it starts. Mixing in the escalating powers and the grander scales with a little bit of 3D graphics to almost confuse you that to think that you're watching one of the video games. But in all seriousness, it was very entertaining. The This was also the first canon appearance of the, of the fusion Gochita, which was really cool to see, and seeing them go Super Saiyan Blue, which is still kind of a dumb name. This movie does highlight a problem with the series, which... Out of all the wonderful cast of characters, there's so much focus on Goku and Vegeta being the only ones to fight and the solution to every problem. They improve on this a bit sometimes with other characters getting moments to shine from time to time, but the fights are won through resourcefulness alone rather than brute force. And I like that, and I want us to kind of return to that where it's more of an adventure and getting a little bit more of the martial arts and the problem-solving back into the series. But I understand that this is a movie, and you do need bigger action. I did appreciate in the end Goku befriending Broly, and even telling him halfway through the fight that he probably doesn't want to be fighting, which is Goku's best quality. He's very caring, even to his enemies. Super kind and focuses... Uh, sorry... 
Dragon Ball Super kind of focuses on his selfish, selfish desire to fight and become stronger and is a little much more to the point that he's uncaring to the people that he loves. But this was a step back in the right direction, making him just a tad bit more heroic. Not, not too much. I'm, in I'm interested to see where this story takes place, and with now Broly being kind of a good guy and a friend with the Z-Fighters. I just hope we get back to having more adventures instead of just fighting again. Now finally, I want to talk about Star Trek Discovery Season 2. I've never been a big fan of Star Trek. I mostly like the Abrams reboots. Sorry. But I understand the appeal of the old Star Trek series and Next Gen. They were adventure shows that were focused on drama. Star Trek was more like a optimistic Twilight Zone, which every episode was a different problem of the week. Where characters either had to deal with personal problems, have a weird sci-fi fiction thing that they had to deal with, or... Just moral dilemmas. Most of the time, it was just Worf getting his ass kicked or Data making up whatever he could do. A lot of the criticism from the movies in the first season of Star Trek Season 1 uh, for Discovery is focused on what was a lot of action in war, which people think is not really Star Trek-y. Now... Granted, it is different, but the reason Star Trek never had a lot of action was because they never really had the budget to do so. The first season of Discovery dealt with a full-blown war in Star Trek, and how the Federation would deal with that. But it also made time for the weird sci-fi stuff, too, and has lots of interesting characters and a lot of surprises that even I wasn't expecting. This season, they bring in Christopher Pike, who was the captain of the Enterprise before Kirk, and was the main character of the pilot for Star Trek, the original one, and is the new captain of the Discovery, filling the void for the rest of the crew, who would rather leave that position vacant because of the betrayal of Lorca. And this season actually seems to be centered more around a mystery of weird phenomenons, linked by this red angel thing that is also linked to Spock and the character of Michael Burnham. This kind of gets back more to what all the Star Trek fans like, but still makes time to have episode arcs and season-long arcs that connect each of the stories. The first one where it's kind of dealing with a ship that's trapped out in far space that still thinks the war is kind of going on between the Federation and the Klingons. That was very interesting, and it was cool to see them trusting a new captain, especially for Michael Burnham. Um, I really like that she's much more... She's letting her emotions in, because even though she was raised on Vulcan, she's still human. And then the second episode was my favorite so far... Because it's dealing with this colony out in deep space where humans have not colonized yet. And they find a settlement that was made right after the in-universe World War III. Which is impossible because space travel for humans was not available yet. So they have this weird human settlement that's all the way out here. 
which is almost impossible. And that felt very Star Trek to me. And it was also an episode directed by Jonathan Frakes, so that kind of speaks to that. But it was this cool idea where they get to explore, like, do they use, do they adhere to the prime directive, which is not to interfere with the development of an ongoing planet? Do they let them believe in a lie that all the rest of humanity is dead? And so it raises a lot of those moral questions while also dealing with weird sci-fi stuff, and I absolutely loved it. This last episode previously dealt with kind of the aftermath of the Klingon War, and we see some of the Klingon characters just going through this stuff. And it was like one of the first instances of action in this season, like where people are actually fighting each other and dying. Um, it does kind of abruptly end with the third season because it has its A plot, its C plot, and its B plot in that order. And like the A plot with Michael Burnham and this mystery revolving around Spock and also this red angel just kind of just stops right in the middle of everything. So it was kind of a weirdly structured episode. Um, but it's moving things right along. It's showing that they can have multiple things going on and also an episode-long arc that finishes up in time for the episode and then they continue with the season-long stuff. Which is kind of fighting a problem that I think most TV shows are having where they focus on season-long arcs instead of having... Regular episodic arcs, which is what happens with a lot of Netflix shows or Amazon Prime shows. There aren't any, like, self-contained episodes. And you really need that not just as a, like, a Monster of the Week kind of thing, but also just to kind of develop a structure for an episode and have things like setups and payoffs that happen in that episode and it's self-contained so you can understand where the story is going. So, but that's a discussion for another time, and I think Star Trek Discovery Season 2 is a step in that right direction. And also, my brother is the biggest Star Trek fan, and he loves the Abram movies, and he loves Star Trek Discovery. And I challenge anyone to try and test his knowledge of Star Trek. Like, you try and tell him what Star Trek is about, and he will prove you why it's wrong and why all of Star Trek is great Except for Voyager, probably. Well, that's actually going to be it for today's episode. I hope you guys like this kind of new format that I'm trying. And, yeah, I think I'm just going to end it right there. So, if you have suggestions or topics uh, that you would like me to discuss, leave comments, leave anything, uh, get a hold of me, send messages, comments... Uh, whatever you want to do, and because I want to make this a conversation. And I hope I'm getting uh, guests on the podcast, because uh, I would love to bring people on and discuss uh, anything weird and interesting uh, that is the world of pop culture. So, that's going to be it for today, guys. I hope you guys have... I'm filming this uh, on the day of the Super Bowl, so whoever your team is, I hope they lose, and I hope everyone lose, because... I, I don't really care about football. <laughs> That's why I'm talking about Star Trek. 
So I'll see you guys next time.